Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the fine folks at Ditch Witch. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by the host of Bass Edge Television, Aaron Martin. Bass Edge TV can be seen three times weekly on the Outdoor Channel and also on the World Fishing Network and Wild TV in Canada. How you doing, Aaron? I'm doing great, Steve. We've got a, a good show lined up with collegiate angler, recently turned pro Jonathan Van Dam. He joins us to discuss smallmouth fishing there on Lake Vermilion. And then also Bob Lusk is back to discuss uh, different types of strikes. That sounds great. Let's get to it. Get her like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing today. Oh, did, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. my friend have you been staying warm lately man i've had trouble it it, i have had trouble too and if you remember i think i still owe you a fishing trip we had actually had to cancel that uh that last week well it was supposed to be three degrees so i think we found something we could agree on there but uh we'll get out next week absolutely but uh, i've been fortunate enough to where i've been staying indoors getting uh caught up on uh some some of the paperwork and also preparing for the upcoming seminars that i get to do be heading out next week there january 31st at the outdoorsman sports shop in greenwood indiana and then uh a couple weeks after that, February 12th through the 14th in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at the Eastern Sports and Outdoor Show. So look forward to meeting people and, and uh, talking a little fishing, seeing what they have to say. Well, I know you've got some great seminars, especially there in Harrisburg, and, and I really urge folks to get out and you know learn what they can from you because it's good stuff. I've been lucky enough to hear those. Hey, Aaron, man, we had a great email this week that uh, I thought would be great to read at this point. It's from Greg in Wichita. Yeah. Greg, actually, what he wants to more or less throw out a, a request instead of a comment is that throughout the year, he has seen it everywhere. Every time he goes fishing, uh, it's kind of disturbing. And it's fishing line along the bank in trees or just basically in general left everywhere. And what he wants to do is please, please pick it up and uh, discard the stuff properly. He gets so aggravated when he sees people throwing it on the ground. And uh, he asked people to, to pick it up and throw it away in the trash. And if they don't, he does it himself. His comment is that we are guests here on this planet. Let's keep it clean. And uh, Greg states that he is stepping off his soapbox now. But uh, I thought that was a good comment. Hey, Greg can stay on that soapbox. You know, Linda can do so much harm to motors and, and, and trolling motors and, and then all the other trash. Folks, clean up after yourself. Absolutely. It can be as easy as, you know, after you drink that water bottle, just making sure that it finds a compartment where it can't blow out. Also, you know, just be aware that uh, we've got waterfowl and, and all the other species that can get tangled up in that stuff. And, uh, Anyway, it's just good stewardship. Yeah, it is. It's just the right thing to do, you know. You owe it to your fellow fishermen. Yeah, well, and it kind of leads me into, uh, I guess, the next topic of our big news, and and that's the title, Somebody's Got to Do It, and kind of ties into what Greg said, but this is a little bit on a different scale, Steve, and uh, why don't you share the big news with us? Well, Somebody's Got to Do It is my new book that I have out, and it's a collection of my various wanderings over the last, well, I won't say how many years, but... uh, (laughs) It's a collection of stories, outdoor stories, hunting, fishing, and other things that uh, I just had a lot of fun doing. Well, I've I've uh, fortunately been kind of privy to read a, a few of the chapters of, of the hardback uh, book that's coming out, and I, I tell you, I have just literally been in stitches on, on some of the stories. I, I can't get over, you know, your effectiveness in, in communicating that humor. But also, you know, I'm sure some of that stuff probably wasn't funny when you were going through it, but, uh, man, when I sat back and 
can read that, I mean, I am just absolutely laughing my stomach off. And, you know, one thing that comes into mind was uh, when you were actually in Alaska, I mean, good night, just the challenge of catching some of those monster fish and then the bears? Well, the bears, that, that that's an interesting thing. See, when you go into the Brooks Park area, you have to go through this little class, bear class, uh, we called it. I think bear etiquette. You get a little thing, you got to wear it on your hat. It's like your license. You don't have it, you get a ticket. It's a little unnerving at first to uh, kind of hear something splashing behind you in the water in the creek right behind you, and you, you figure one of your buddies is coming up, and you look around, and there's a bear chasing salmon around. It, it's a little unnerving, but you do realize in a hurry that uh, they're pretty much interested in uh, catching salmon, not anglers. Well, in addition to the, the bear encounters, and, and, and it kind of cracks me up that there is such a thing called bear etiquette, because I, I, I think a bear's <laughs> going to do with you what he wants, but you actually had put some very, very nice fish on the end of your line. Well, we did. You know, we fished on the Nagnak River, which is kind of known as the best rainbow trout river in the world. And on one particular trip up there, I've been fortunate enough to go twice up there, but uh, on one particular trip, on the last day, I hadn't been catching the big ones like all the other guys on the trip had, and I was getting a little down in the mouth about it. But about midday there, I hooked up and caught two 30-inchers, 12-pounders, real twins, on consecutive cast, and uh, it's very exciting to catch these on a caught them on a number seven fly rod, and you have to chase these fish down the bank, <laughs> and in this particular case, around the corner because they're running down the river, and if you don't get down to the corner, they'll pull your line up into the woods. So it can be pretty exciting, and moving through rushing water and slippery rocks and knee deep water can be uh, pretty exciting in itself. Thank good I didn't fall. Well, speaking of, of falling and, and uh, being pretty exciting, another story that sticks out is the, the dog sledding trip up on the Boundary Waters. Well, you know, you and I were talking about this the other day. We were sort of cooking up trips, and, and that's just one that you've expressed that you wanted to do, and, and I just want to go back. It really is one of the neatest things that I ever did. And, of course, when we were up there, there were three outdoor riders, no, four outdoor riders and a guide, and we had three sleds. So one of the other outdoor riders was an experienced dog sledder, and they informed me at the we uh, stopped at a little water hole the night before, which uh, sometimes I've been known to do, and they informed me that I was going to be driving the third sled because I was the biggest guy. Well, <laughs> they spent uh, a good part of the evening explaining how this all went. Well, you hook your sleds up and you you tie them to uh, like a post or or the uh, you know bumper of the truck or whatever, and the guy comes out and hooks up each dog individually. Well, as each dog hooks up, they're going crazy. They're ready to go, and you're just sitting there. And by the time he gets eight dogs hooked up to your sled, you're just bumping and riding. And, of course, in our case, the sled that took off in front of me was from a different outfitter, slung out, hit the car, turned over, and we could see this guy oh, in the distance no. hanging onto his sled being drug across the lake. Well, was he okay? He was. I can't say. I, yeah, he was okay. Oh, I mean, I think that's just part of that, but... Uh, uh, but he held on. He didn't lose his dogs. I mean, that's in that country, you got moose and wolves and all kind of things. But then you, you finally, it's your turn. You reach back and you pull the knot, you jerk it, and it's like a slingshot. And you have to go down this hill off this parking lot, probably about 500 yards over several hills, and you go airborne over these little 
bluffs, and you just hang on for dear life till you get down to the lake below. And it was truly one of the most exciting things that, that I've ever. Well, seen. it it certainly sounds like it, and I, I tell you that is just a such a small sampling, you know, from fishing in Africa to turkey hunting in Arkansas to canoeing on the Buffalo River. I mean, you know, the book is chock full, and it's probably one of the best reads that I've had the opportunity to read in a long time. So I'd encourage anybody who is interested in the outdoors need to have that as part of their library. So congratulations. I'm going to get you to talk a little bit more in episodes to come, sharing some of those samplings with us, because, uh, man, what a book. Well, thanks, Aaron. That's kind of you to say, and, and I had fun doing it. And, and folks can buy it this week on BassEdge.com. So uh, get on there, and I encourage you to buy it. Uh, I need the money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, leave it to Steve. I tell you, tell it like it is, and that's what I appreciate about you, Steve. Well, listen, man, I, you know me. I could talk about this all day, but uh, we, we need to get to a break here because I know you got a great talk with John Van Dam. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. All right, we are back on The Edge, and joining us this week is the very successful Collegiate Bass Anglers Association, and that is John Van Dam. John, thanks so much uh, for being part of The Edge. Hey, thanks a lot, Aaron. It's good to be here. You know, John, uh, we had the opportunity to obviously spend some time together uh, up in northern Minnesota on Lake Vermilion. Of course, we want to dive into that because that was uh, just such a fantastic uh, time and, and just opportunity to catch some quality smallmouth. But really, I, I want to spend just a, a brief second talking to you a little bit about the Collegiate Bass Anglers Association and kind of the impact that it's that it's had on your life. The association has been great. You know, the Collegiate Bass Anglers Association has done a lot for the sport. It's been a big, big deal and will be continue to be a pretty big deal, you know, as I continue to move forward in my career. Well, and, and you know, the the thing about that, that, you know, we have Troy on here every six or eight weeks, uh, president of CBAA, but uh, it provides really uh, students who might not otherwise go to college the opportunity to maybe incentivize them to, to get involved with school. Yeah, I mean, the kids who love bass fishing who, you know, may not want to go to college, don't, you know, don't have any interest in it, you know, but now that this, this program has come along, you know, the the uh, Collegiate Bass Anglers Association, you, you know, they got this program set up, and it's it will really encourage a lot of kids who really love the sport, and it will just help it grow tremendously. Well, you know, and I know it served, obviously, you well and, and served so many other anglers uh, very, very well, and it's it's almost scary to see, uh, you know, the quality of anglers and the learning curve of, of how steep that that's gotten because, you know, a lot of the anglers such as yourself have really done very well, uh, whether it be on a local uh, tournament, regional tournament level, or even a national tournament level, but also be contributing citizens, you know, in their respective communities. Yeah, I mean, these kids are now getting the opportunity, you know, instead of fishing just the local tournaments and, and the, the stuff they've been doing, you know, for however many years they've been doing it for, they now get the opportunity to travel the country, fish these premier lakes around the country, and it would be a really great opportunity to learn tons and tons, meet all sorts of people, you know that will really help them out as they continue, you know, whether they pursue the professional career or not, um, you know, that's up to them, but 
It'll really give them the opportunity to open a lot of doors for people. Well, and, and speaking of traveling the country and, and the effect and the, and the benefits that, that you picked up by doing that, you know, certainly we went to Minnesota. You nor I had ever spent or made a cast on Lake Vermilion prior to uh, the airing of the show. You want to kind of set the stage on what anglers and our listeners can expect, you know, when they venture up into uh, some of the North Country? Oh, man, the North Country is unbelievable, man. If you're looking for some of those smallmouth, it's the best smallmouth fishing you can find. Uh, you know, whether it's Minnesota, River, Lake Vermilion was phenomenal. Northern Michigan, you get over to Ohio and you get over by Lake Erie. But the smallmouth up there, just, you know, they grow a lot bigger than they do, you know, down south. They're some lakes down south that have them pretty good, but nothing compared to what's like in the north. Well, you know, I, I second that, and obviously uh, coming really from the Midwest and, and being on Table Rock Lake, which obviously has smallmouth, uh, I was really surprised just not only the numbers, but the quality of fish. And, you know, staying there at, at Pike Bay Lodge, which is kind of where we put in, uh, really we weren't more than a, just a very, very short idle away from being able to put the trolling motor down and go fishing. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like uh, when we first started, you know, we caught a few right off the bat. We didn't go very far from, you know, from the ramp in it. But once we started catching one, you know, it was this boom, 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 boom. Right after that, we caught, I don't know how many fish we caught that day, but it was, you know, it was ridiculous. I, I certainly know we caught more than we were able to, to put into, uh, you know, the 30-minute television show. But, you know, with with Lake Vermilion being a glacial lake, and, you know, it's a natural lake, I think, in you and I's research, I, I remember uh, just really in, in some of our studies, it showed that the water level only fluctuated about a foot and a half per year. You know, how big of a, of a factor do you think that is with, uh, you know, being able to pattern the fish? Uh, I think that's, you know, a pretty big factor. You don't have to deal with a lot of the fluctuation. You don't have the flood levels and... You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, it's, it helps quite a bit. You know, you don't have less to worry about, I guess I should say, when you're when you're going to set up a pattern. You know, you don't have to worry about the next few days or so. You could get a bunch of rain, the, the lake level or the river or something could rise a foot, you know, and your fish will disappear. So it really helps you pattern them over a longer period of time. Well, and, and speaking of weather change, you know, when we started out that morning right there close uh, to the Bass Bay area, uh, we started out on a point. We obviously was very, very calm, almost slick, and it was really really a protected bay but as the day progressed the wind really picked up and, and started I, I guess you would consider it pounding some of the areas that we were trying to to target the smallmouth yeah i mean the, the wind picking up though but with the smallmouth they really like that wind and uh you know i think it actually helped our bite quite a bit when we caught when we got on the windy side and though it was hard to fish we caught quite a few and the fish quality was a lot better when we were there well, ex exactly, and I think that that wind action has a lot to do, and we, of course we talked about this on the show, but uh, it just really breaks up the, the silhouette of the bank. Yeah, and also, I mean, with that wind, you know, the waves, you know, hitting the shore, we're getting up on all those rocks, and, and we found there were bunches and bunches of crayfish there, and the smallmouth were spitting them up all over. And, uh, you know, with the, the wind crashing on the banks there with, with the waves, was really kind of mixing those crayfish up and getting them out of those rocks, and the smallmouth were eating them. Well, exactly, and, and one of the things that I noticed, obviously, it was not like you said only the the just the abundance of crayfish but with it being a glacial lake you know you come out of the channel and then there's a, a pretty steep ledge and it gets shallow very quickly so a lot of times those waves will break right there at the ledge and if you have that you know crashing on the bank it almost creates kind of an undertow you know bringing the bait back out right yeah i mean that's basically what was happening where we were you know the, the waves were crashing the undertow was kind of kicking and then it was pulling those crawfish out with them 
And, uh, you know, the smallmouth were just sitting there waiting for them, you know. It's like we throw our tube in there, and they're pretty much sitting there thinking our tube was a crawfish that's waiting for it to come right out to them. And, you know, it was real successful for us. You know, one last thing to add on that, too, was, uh, you know, when we started early that morning, the fish seemed to be holding quite a bit shallower than what they were as, as the wind uh, more or less picked up, and it kind of proved that point that we just spoke about. Right. I think, uh, you know, what happened was the wind, as the wind picked up, that current or undertow, I guess you could call it, really got stronger and would wash the crayfish out farther to them. So I think that's what happens, you know, when the, when we were there in the morning. The fish were up more shallower, you know, waiting because the waves weren't really hitting the shore as, as, you know, as hard as they were when the wind picked up. So the crayfish weren't coming out as far as what I think was going on. Oh, I, I would totally agree. And, you know, there, there was a... When we started down that first stretch, of course, the wind was a little bit calmer. But I want to kind of more or less shift gears into uh, explaining the kind of what was on the bottom because, the, you know, the lake is obviously full of boulders, uh, rock, gravel, uh, but also has a lot of wood in it. Yeah, I mean, we caught, you know, numerous pieces of wood we got hung up in, you know, lots and lots of boulders. You know, it really seemed the key spots as we're kind of it all kind of mixed together. You know, you had the gravel that kind of ran, the boulder stopped right at the gravel, and, you know, had a little bit of wood around in there. We had some isolated logs and stuff we'd catch a fish off of, um, you know, that type of thing. I guess we, and we say we caught fish off of just about everything, um, you know, but the key spots seemed to be more where the rock, the boulders kind of met the gravel. Exactly. We, you know, we, you, I think you find that a lot of times in, in what I would consider the transition areas. Uh, anytime you have that change, uh, you know, from one rock type or one uh, bank type to another, uh, it seems like that the fish really use that as an ambush. Yeah, oh, definitely. You know, is what you get, I mean, the crayfish are going to be crawling around those rocks. And I don't know if they really like crawling in the big rocks and that type of thing, you know. It's harder for the smallmouth to get them. The cool thing about smallmouth is they'll fluctuate colors to blend in with the bottom and their surroundings. So, you know, if they're in those rocks, which uh, that's what I believe they were doing anyways, they're, they're in those rocks waiting for a crawfish to come out onto the gravel, you know, where it was easy pickings for them. Exactly, and you know, they didn't have to take their nose or their lip and, and kick over any rocks to find them. Uh, they just more or less waited for one to kind of make a mistake and, and I guess show itself and, and capitalize on that opportunity. Yeah, and that's what you get with those transition areas, you know, whether it be from rock to sand or you know, any of that type of thing. Basically, you just get fish waiting, you know, anything, even with weeds, you get fish waiting on the edges of the weeds, whether it's a hole in the weeds or, you know, some rocks, a different kind of bottom or what it is. They're just basically going to wait there until something comes and makes a mistake, and that's when their big ambush point comes from. Exactly, and you know one of the things that you brought up earlier, as far as just the different amounts of the, the rocks, the boulders, the wood, and we spent a lot of time obviously taking wood off the end of our. Uh, you know, we I think we caught I think we had our limit of, of timber that day. I think we did. I think we had one close to ten pounds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And but you know the the style that we were fishing was that uh, that that tube uh, hook with the internal weight where you slide it up in the cavity and. And that just really comes with the territory of that style of fishing. Right. I mean, you got to be in with them. You know, we'll get hung up a lot. And we did. We got hung up, you know, a bunch of times. And it got frustrating. There were times where it was like, man, I'm hung up again. You know, but you had to be in there. We were just catching so many fish that it was worth being hung up a few times. You know, to stick them out and catch. We caught tons and tons of fish. Well, exactly. And that's where I think concentration and focus and sticking to what you know uh, what you have confidence in because it was working and um, you, you know I, I can't help but but remember there was a, a couple times to where we actually got hung up uh, I think each of us actually did this I know one was a, a really good fish that I lost but it was on actually on a boulder and I was sitting there trying to pop it off you know and as soon as we popped that off 
you know, the fish reacted to it and just ate it once it came loose. Yeah, I mean, those, those were things we weren't really prepared for, you know. We were expecting you to be crawling along the bottom, but when we get hung up, you know, we'd go and get it with a trolling motor. Or, yeah, I mean, we popped a couple of those fish, you know, off. The fish ate it right away, and we just weren't ready for them. Right. Real quick, before we get away from the tube and the bait that we were using, uh, there was a big difference. You know, you, were, you had used... A, I think it was a Gobi uh, color? Yeah, it was a Gobi color. It had some purple in it. It was like a dark melon color. had some purple, some silver, uh, a little bit of uh, copper color to it, too. And uh, you were throwing something that was similar, just had a little bit, you know, different variation in flat color. And I don't know what it was, but it made a big difference what color it was. Well, it, it did, and I actually tried two other colors besides that to really try and, and, and see if, if it was more of a color. You know, I even flipped the jig a little bit, and of course they did not hit that. You know, I got a few bites, caught a few fish, so then I transferred over into the tube and tried switching up on some colors. And, and that kind of told us that, you know, color was a, a really a big factor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you messed with a variety of different things, and, and I just kind of stuck with it. And, you know, I was catching fish right along the whole time, and you messed with a variety of things. You catch one here on this bait and one on another bait or something. But it really did make a pretty big difference, and, and we, you know, made sure that there were no variant patterns that we could find. You know, any colors that would work better you know, that type of thing. It's the one thing we made sure of. Well, and, and of course, Dr. Jay McNamara, you know, talks about this all the time on In the Zone segment, uh, both on Bass Edge Television and also here on the podcast. But, you know, the time to actually learn and really take quantum leaps as an angler is when the fish are biting. And, you know, we learned a lot that day by experimenting with the different colors of tubes. Yeah, I mean, we sure did. And that, you know, honestly, that is the best time when the fish are absolutely biting, you know. I know it may be tough to put the bait that you're catching them down on, you know, put that thing down and pick a different bait up and see if they'll eat that. And, you know, they might not. You'll get sick of it after a while, but, you know, you'll just want to pick up that lure again and just go to whacking them. But, you know, it really helps quite a bit. You'll learn a lot more if you really do try to find some different stuff. You know, you may find something that the bigger fish seem to key on. You know, whereas you're catching numbers with one, you're catching big ones with another lure. It, it's a, you know, you can find a variety of different things. And the other thing that I want to be sure and touch on is just the fact that, again, you know, really we did not pull information from anyone other than just, a, you know, talking uh, with some of the locals uh, there, I think, that morning, you know, at the, at the coffee shop, and, and we looked at the map. But really, we just put the trolling motor down, we identified, we looked at the map, and went fishing. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the best things to do, you know, study maps, look for little things on maps, like, uh, you know, whether it be a steeper break in one area, you know, or, or you get a little bit of underwater point contour change, you know, something like that. But, you know, we really didn't talk to very many people. I mean, we saw some locals, but most of the locals here are going to be musky fishing, walleye fishing. And they catch all sorts of big ones, you know. And these aren't just walleyes, you know. They're trophy-class <laughs> fish, every one of them. Are, so. You know, I mean, and that's a good point. And that's the other advantage about coming to an area like, uh, you know, Lake Vermilion in Minnesota is just the opportunity to catch so many subspecies, meaning, you know, the pike, the, the muskie, and, and the walleye. Yeah, we caught a number of walleye, uh, a number of pike and stuff while we were doing the show. And, uh, you know, this, this place is really a world-class fishery. I mean, they got trophy-class, you know, mountable fish that you would be, you know, definitely want to be ashamed of putting on your wall on every species they have out here. Well, no question there. I mean, it was probably one of the best smallmouth trips that uh, I've had as an angler, not even just, you know, being part of Bass Edge, but it, it was certainly a lot of fun. Hey, in our last closing minute, one of the things that I do want to get to is, uh, you know, just the, the rig and more or less the terminal tackle you know, that we used, uh, which was a spinning rod and reel, 
and then uh, you know that eight pound uh, fluorocarbon line. Yeah, we were using light line. You know, it really, really made the smallmouth. You know, you got to use that kind of tackle with the smallmouth. Uh, you know, you can't really get away with it as much when you're you're fishing largemouth because the largemouth are going to be in the weeds and that type of thing. Where smallmouth are more of an open open range fish. You know, it makes it a lot of fun on that light tackle. And those smallmouth, they fight so hard. And it's make you work for them. And certainly, I think I was a little naive just in the quality because normally, you know, you could take a 12-inch smallmouth on that style of tackle and you've got your hands full. And, uh, of course, we you know we were catching several in the 3- to 4-pound class range. Uh, Jonathan, you know, unfortunately, we are out of time, but what a great time up there. Any closing uh, thoughts or, or comments before we get on down the road? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, if you get any of the, the college bass anglers or just any angler, go ahead and go on to BassEdge.com. And uh, the Ask the Pro section, shoot me an email. I'll be more than happy to do whatever I can to help out on any tips or anything like that. Well, Jonathan, thank you again so much uh, for spending time uh, to do the interview and also uh, for the show. What a what a great time. Wish you the best of luck uh, in the upcoming year. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. You know, I hope to come back someday and maybe fish with you again. Hi, I'm Travis Ruley. Stick around for more tips and techniques from the pros from Bass Edge. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made. Not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller. Backhoe. Stump grinder. And tool carrier ever made. The Zahn. The revolution is here. Well, Aaron, I must say, our trip up to Minnesota with uh, Jonathan Van Dam had to be one of my favorites of the year. Oh, no question. I mean, what a place. I mean, not only the scenery, but uh, exceptional fishing. Kind of hard to get any better than that. Oh, uh, sitting out in the evening, looking at the stars, listening to the coyotes. It's one of the places I got to fish. Yeah, we actually got into town a little bit early, so uh, you and I had taken a couple hours, went out and uh, tried to catch uh, some of those toothy critters, and I know you had some success. I did not, but uh, it was certainly very, very fun. Oh, that was fun, but the smallmouth were amazing on that one. Oh, I know, and, and could you believe, you know, the amount of crayfish that we saw just swimming around? I mean, it was amazing. You know, the fish were in shallow water, which was a little surprising to us, but just going along the bank, you just see them scrambling all over the rocks, and how many times have you got to fill up your tube and it's got a crawfish? Too many times to count, and I can tell you definitely the tube with that, inserting that weight into the cavity with that exposed hook and using that spinning tackle to pop it off the rocks, man, I tell you, they were eating it up. Boy, and then day two, something completely different. Too windy to go out on the lake. We had to stay in the canal. We were kind of bummed out about it, but man, there were some docks in there, and they produced the good. Well, I learned so much that day, because you know, it was one of those deals to where you know what's out there. But, you know, when we pulled out of that canal, I mean, there was five to six footers. And normally, if it would have been a tournament situation, you know, we would have went out there. But, you know, often in that, we don't have another boat following us, you know, with all the camera gear and everybody else's lives at stake. But by just doing what we, I should say, had confidence in and sticking back, knowing the limitations to where we didn't get out there, beat ourselves up and take that gamble, you know, staying in that canal, fishing those retaining walls and those docks, Man, dividends were produced on that day. Well, the retaining docks built to keep erosion on the sides of the canal had kind of aged and rotted away in certain spots, which was essentially 
like a bunch of stumps in a row, and you, and you guys caught some good fish there, and Jonathan caught a beautiful largemouth. We did, and you know that's what it comes down to when you've got two guys on the boat. You're able to develop a strategy. You know, one of us on in this case, I fished the front of the wall. Jonathan was fishing the back, and, and he, you know, he caught a very nice one, uh, and another three pounder to go with it. Those largemouth were actually holding kind of more on the back side of that wall. Then we moved to the docks, and do you remember kind of the highlight? Something that I'll never forget. Never happened to me in all my fishing, and that was the mouse. Catches a fish under the dock, and it's got a mouth, its tail and feet hanging out the back, which actually makes sense. It was an old dock. It looked like the kind of place you might have some mice running around, and this was just an unlucky guy that fell in the water. Yeah, that was certainly a highlight and one that I'll remember for a long, long time. Well, I'll tell you what, Aaron, let me give something away. All right. Okay, well, we've got a copy of our brand-new Electronics 101 DVD, which is just fantastic with yourself and Mike Webb, and a Bass Edge decal to give away, and that's going to Stephen in Blacksburg, Virginia. Well, congratulations, Stephen. I know he'll get a lot of mileage out of that. I hope he enjoys uh, using that as much as what we did producing that. And then we also have, uh, Steve, a listener question this week, and that is from Doug in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it's answered by Dr. Fish himself, Jay McNamara. Well, Doug wants to know, I fish a lot of natural lakes here in southern Wisconsin. I've been tournament fishing for two years now, and I've had some problems this year. I seem to find fish, but they're undersized. I catch illegal fish and then a bunch of smaller fish. If I go to a different part of the lake, the same problem. My question is, how do I find some bigger fish? Bigger lures? Well, Doug, Dr. J, basically, he lives up there in Minneapolis and uh, obviously fishes a lot of the northern lakes. And so we threw this out to him, thought that he could point you in the right direction. It says, thanks for the note. The first thing to figure out is if the lakes you're fishing produce big fish. If you're fishing in or near Milwaukee itself, your lakes likely get heavy recreational pressure with a larger percentage of the fish being kept for the freezer. That is true for us up here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. If you find that some of the anglers on the lakes you fish consistently get into big fish and you don't, then I suggest a mentor or a teacher. You may be fishing shallow when the bass are deep or vice versa, or you may be fishing obvious spots that get hammered especially hard and therefore hold few big fish, or you may be overlooking other key variables related to location and or presentation. Nothing helps more than a mentor. You can try to figure it all out by yourself, but that's not as efficient. Kind of like learning to play the trumpet, basketball, etc. What I can tell you specifically is the biggest bass caught in our local tournaments come from either impossibly thick cover like matted milfoil or impenetrable lily pads or from subtle underwater structure. Example, weed beds, rock piles, and gravel points that only the most patient, perceptive anglers are willing to go out and find. Best of luck, Dr. Fish. Well, I've learned to listen to Dr. Fish, and he sure knows those northern lakes, so hopefully that was some help. But somebody else I like to listen to is Bob Lust, the pond boss himself. Aaron, let's pull away and then come back and see what Bob's got to say. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Hi, I'm Jared Littner, and you're listening to Bass Edges, The Edge. 
Hello and welcome back to The Edge, and my next guest is certainly no stranger to Bass Edge, and that is the pond boss himself, also fisheries biologist, Mr. Bob Lust. Bob, thanks so much for being part of The Edge. Hello, Aaron. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. You know, and exciting, excited rather, to learn a little bit more what you tackled in uh, the television show this week, and that is the three types of strikes. You know, I think this is something that's probably all of us are aware of, but might be a little bit new from the standpoint of how they're defined. I'll tell you, the different kinds of strikes always fascinate me because who knows what it's going to be. That's part of the fun of fishing is to figure out what kind of strike you're going to get. You know, finding the fish is the first key, but once you find them, how do you how do you make them get in the boat with you? What makes them jump in there with you? To me, there's three kinds of strikes. There's where a fish strikes out of hunger, it's ready to be fed. The second one is a reactionary strike, and that's where, you know, your bait hits the water and instinctively a fish hits it. Not because it's hungry, but just because that's the instinct of a fish. There's a third kind of strike where it, I call it a defensive strike. It's where, hey, don't bring that stuff into the paint, buddy. You're not coming in here. A big female bass, for example, is defending a nest, or a, a large fish has got a specific area that it's going to protect and defend from all comers. So that's a defensive strike. That's the three strikes. Well, when you're looking at those three strikes, and let's say we're, you know, we're heading out on the water, uh, whether it be for a tournament or recreational fishing or hitting our pond, whatever, it doesn't matter. Can you give us any indication or any hints of what types of strikes we need to be looking for? I think that depends on the season of the year, the temperature of the water, and the depth. For example, if fish are suspended close to cover off of a point, they may be feeding, but they're not going to be feeding 24 hours a day. They may be feeding an hour a day or two hours a day. The rest of that time, you're going to have to make noise, you know, a rattle trap or a spinnerbait with a willow blade, something that's really going to jar them to attention, kind of jar them out of that safety mode and make them react. So, you know, that's part of the fun of trying to figure it out. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that a lot of people do, but I sure don't know which strike it is. That's why people switch baits. That's why in the wintertime, you know, you're, you're throwing a jig out there in 30 feet of water, but it's in the spring, you're throwing a spinner bait in five feet of water. It just depends. Well, is it safe to assume that, you know, when you see, uh, to me, there's two types of schooling activity. One is on a surface level, and then the other is obviously where they go into a schooling activity, you know, in, in deeper water where subsurface, basically below the surface. Is it safe to say that that would be an example of, you know, a feeding strike when you throw your bait out? there or maybe a, a spook or some sort of top water and boom they respond to it you bet that's a feeding strike now Typically when fish are moving, they're moving for a reason. They've either been spooked away or they're out on the prowl trying to find something to eat. So that's definitely a feeding strike. When they're schooled and moving and you're getting strike after strike after strike after strike, that's almost always feeding mechanisms. So hence, that's probably a reason why when you say that they're on the move, targeting schooling fish exclusively can be a little bit of feast or famine, pardon the pun, because obviously they're moving. That's right. That's what they're doing. When, when you see any surface activity, that's always feeding always. And when you see them moving around under, you know, down six or eight feet deep and they're moving, that's also feeding activity. So that's when you're after a feeding strike. And that's that's when it is feast or famine. You may catch 12 fish in 10 minutes and not catch another one for four hours. Yeah. Well, and then also on the reactionary strike, you could probably target those types of strikes with a multitude of baits, meaning 
the fish are holding, you know, let's say tight to cover or under a dock for the overhead cover and, and, and safety and security, you know, it, it might be more of a vertical type of, of bait, let's say a jig or some sort of soft plastic. Whereas other times, you know, you get those windy conditions, you know, overcast skies, you might be able to pick up, like you said, a, a crankbait or a spinnerbait or something that's going to put off a little bit more vibration. That's exactly right. Like a fish holding to a dock or holding next to a rock, that's going to be a reaction strike almost every time, unless it's a big fish that's defending that area. And you might have to throw in there 15 times if your gut's telling you there's a fish there and you don't get a hit till you throw it in there the eighth time, that's almost always a defensive strike. But when you throw a jig or something under a dock, and as it settles down, as it's on the fall, that's almost always a reaction strike when the fish hits it. So essentially then, kind of taking it a step further with the defensive strike, that might be a position that's not always held exclusive to, let's say, the spawn. That's true, because... Bigger fish, for example, have bigger tendencies. A double-digit bass is not going to behave the same way as a two-pound bass. You know, if you think about a double-digit bass, it can eat anything it wants. It can eat a two-pound bass if it wants to. You know, but what it's going to do is it's going to dominate the area in which it lives. It's going to create its own home, its own niche, and that's where that fish is going to stay almost all the time except when it goes and spawns. You know, when it spawns, it's going to defend. But when that fish leaves that bed and goes right back to that premier structure in which it lives, it's going to defend that area against other fish coming in and trying to take it away. You know, when a fish is finding a place that it really likes to be, a largemouth bass especially, it's going to want to stay there. It's going to want to go out and feed, but come right back to that same spot. And when you're trying to coax it off of that spot, you're going to have to anger it a little bit. So that's the defensive strike. In other words, you know, a reactionary strike is when a bait hits the water and a fish goes straight to it. A defensive strike is when you might have to hit it right in the nose with it. Like the guys at the trophy hunt out in California, when they're when they're trying to catch a giant fish in 15 or 18 feet of water, what they're trying to do is make it strike defensively. That's not a reaction strike, and that's not a feeding strike. If and when they catch that fish, it's because they went there day after day after day, knew where that fish was, and finally, after 483 casts at its face, it hit. I tell you what, that's that's kind of the dream that I think all of us as anglers have, is, is being able to, to land that one, regardless of, of the strike. Bob, once again, as always, great information. Appreciate you taking time out to be part of The Edge. Before we get out of here, any closing thoughts or comments? You know, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Aaron. I, I love hanging out with you guys. I tell you what, if somebody has a question, Go to the website, ask the pros, throw it at me, and I'll be glad to answer it. Or they can come to my website at www.pondboss.com. Click on Ask the Boss and ask the questions, and we'll come right back to you. It's a pleasure, buddy. Thanks for including me. Thanks so much, Bob. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. 
Unfortunately, our time has expired for this edition of The Edge. Where do we wind up next week, Steve? We're heading to the Lone Star State to fish Big Sam, Sam Rayburn with Sean Hornicky. The fishing was great down there. And we've also got elite angler Mark Tucker who's along to discuss matching your weights with the cover you're fishing. Well, sure to be good. And uh, don't forget, we are on the Outdoor Channel Thursdays at 8 a.m., Fridays at 9 a.m., Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and also on the World Fishing Network seven days a week for the latest Bass Edge information, merchandise, and to sign up for our e-newsletter product giveaways and ask the pro questions visit us online at bassedge.com for steve brigman i'm aaron martin and we'll see you next week right here on the edge this week's edition of bass edges the edge has been brought to you by bw trailer hitches ditch witch mega wear keel guard o'reilly auto parts and legend boats For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.